you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me this month to talk about the all-new, all-original Treasury Edition, JLA, Heaven's Ladder, is my pal and fellow podcaster, Sean Ross. Hi, Sean. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to have you on the show. This is your first appearance on Treasure Cast. I was sort of amazed at that. I was so sure you had done one before this. And I went went back through the, the episodes. I'm like, oh, no, this is this is all new. So I'm happy to have you on. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We, we've recorded together so frequently that I actually didn't realize I hadn't been on this show. Right, either. yeah. It all, they all started blending together after a while. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, this is great. Like, a pod, one more, you know, one pod Dylan, and I think I've got the whole set. Like, I think I'm good. <laughs> You you get a coin. I issue you a coin you know, if that <laughs> happens. So, but yeah, this is really exciting. We're to talk about it again an, an all original tre- uh, treasury. This came, like I said, it was called the JLA Heaven's Ladder. It came out in two thousand. It's by Mark Wade. Brian Hitch, Andy Landing, and many more, and we will get to all that uh, shortly. But, of course, since this is your first time on the show, I want to ask you, Sean, like, what history do you have with the Treasury format, if if any? So I have what I think of as family vacation culture experience with the Treasury cast, which I know is going to sound weird. But, like, you and I and, and probably a lot of our listeners are, are men or women of a certain age, and we grew up doing the, you know, backseat of a station wagon, no seatbelt family trips, right? And so, I mean, we, you know, we did. I mean, there was, you know, the, and we would travel, you know, to these weird places. And I lived in California, Oregon. I lived in kind of the West Coast most of my life. And, you know, we would kind of just pile into a car and drive to some random place where my parents knew some random person where we could crash and, you know, whatever. And so the only way to keep me at a very young age entertained was <laughs> to put comics in front of me. Yeah, and yeah. actually, even at a very old age, the only way to keep me entertained <laughs> is to put comics in front of me. Your wife has picked up the same habit from your mom. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. If I'm grumpy or having a bad day, then she's like, just just go to the store. Just go to the comic book <laughs> store. She knows me well. <laughs> And you know, and and, and as, as I'm sure many of us can relate to, when we sneak into our homes with our big bags of comics, when we're especially when we're like self-medicating, uh, I like to you know kind of tell my wife like, well, it, it's not crack; it could be crack. <laughs> and so you know, but that only worked for the first few years. But anyway, <laughs> we would go on these family vacations, and you know, I'd have a stack of comics, but the the comics, you know, they wouldn't hold up as well over the course of a long vacation, or I'd blow through them pretty quickly. And so my parents kind of figured out, and I kind of figured out. That suddenly there were these other formats that held up a little bit better, and ah. we would see them. Yeah, we would see them in weird places, right? Like in a, a convenience store or a grocery store. And so my first, uh, my first treasuries were actually the uh, Fantastic Four one that you covered, the the Lee Kirby, the first one. Oh wow! And, and, okay. Yeah, and then the uh, Legion of Superheroes one that you've actually covered as well. And I remember those vividly. Because they, because it was a sturdier format, I could read them again and again and again and again. And sure. I literally memorized like every member of the Legion 
all the way from Portland, Oregon down to San Diego and then back <laughs> up to Portland, Oregon, you know, and I, I learned my misogyny from Reed and Sue and I, you know, like I just really grew up on these. And so even though I'm a, a you know, floppy guy, even though I have, you know, I won't even mention how many long boxes of comics, I always have a love for that format because it feels sturdier and it, it reminds me of, of being a kid and needing something that's going to hold up a little better. And actually, even the one we're doing today, Heaven's Ladder, I've had this thing for 20 years and it doesn't fit in a box. So it's been sort of on the top of a comic or on the top of a shelf in a closet for a really long time. And I pulled it down thinking, oh, this thing's going to be in bad shape and it totally is in perfect shape. And I'm like, well, that's the beauty of the format. There you go. Right. Yeah. I have the same copy it's sitting here to my left as, as we record this. This is the same copy I bought. 20 years ago and mm-hmm. it look it's in really good shape i mean i keep them on a bookshelf and they stay upright and whatever I, that's kind of funny that like your parents clearly made like sort of the financial calculation that they're <laughs> like you know this book is a dollar fifty or two dollars or it's it's four times what an average comic book is but it's going to last them a lot longer than these mm-hmm. little pamphlets so let's buy them the fantastic four book i the parent i i like that idea the parents kind of like your your parents are size especially the marvel one since they were square bound uh, they even have that sort of feeling of like bookishness to them, which makes them feel much more, you know, again, like you said, durable. Yeah, yeah, it was just a sturdier format. And I wish I could say, you know, sometimes people grow up and, and their parents were like, oh, comics aren't real reading or anything. And I was lucky my parents weren't like that at all. They, honestly, as long as I was quiet and away, I was cool. Uh, so it wasn't like a, this feels more like a book kind of thing. It really was just a, I can throw this at him from the front seat, he can catch it, <laughs> and then I won't hear from him for another state. You know, so it was good. <laughs> It was good family trip reading. <laughs> We've made it through Oregon, and we haven't heard one word from him. Is he still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. The book, the book is upright, so he must yeah. be holding it. So he's okay. All right, great. Well, very cool. That's uh, that's fantastic. Have you gone on to buy more of them as a collector or just as a reader since? Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, and I know uh, I'm not trying to just blow smoke. It, honestly, because of your show, I had <laughs> really forgotten how much I loved that format. And and in listening to your show, I was like, oh God, you know what? I, I haven't read the, the one you, you know, I, like I would cover particularly uh, some of the more obscure ones that I hadn't like. You know, Flintstones like, Christmas party, exactly. And I was like, okay. So and then my my local comic shop had just a big stack of them. So of course I was like, oh yeah, I'm all in. This is great. So no, yeah, I have been buying them and I've really been enjoying them. And and it's it's funny. There's something you know when you're a comic book collector. I'm not obsessive about the condition of my books. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I, me neither. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I keep them in boxes and I bag them and everything, and that's great. I'm not, you know, fanatic about it. But there's something, there's some freedom in the treasury format where I'm like, you know, screw it, who cares? Like, I'll throw it in the back seat, or I'll like, you know, fold it and keep it, you know, with me in my work bag, or I don't know what it is. It's it's like this weird. The comic gods gave me permission to like treat this thing like it's 1950 and I'm putting, you know, spokes, you know, cards on the spokes of my bike or something. <laughs> and so there's just this weird freedom with it that I really enjoy and kind of wigs my wife out because I've programmed her for so many years. Like, don't touch my comics. Don't touch my comics. <laughs> and then she'll see one just like sitting out on our ottoman and she's like, you know, our kid's going to wreck that. I'm like, yeah, let her. It's a treasury. And she's like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. So it's just weird. I- I love these glimpses into the Ross family dynamic. This is very entertaining. I really enjoy it. I want to hear more about this, to be honest with you, but that's maybe the topic for another show. So, that's a different show. Yeah, that's a different show. I, I will say, uh, I when I go to a comic shop, uh, 
a new comic shop that I've been to before, and I see that they have treasuries, I have that instinct to buy one, even though I already own them all. You know what I mean? But I just like I'm so happy to see them still in stores. I was down in Florida just a couple of weeks ago uh, with with my girlfriend Kelly, and we stopped at a comic store because I said I said I just want to kind of see what a different store looks like. And luckily, she's very amenable to that. So we stopped at a place called the Past present future and uh they had treasuries in there and i was like i had this other i i showed her some and i was so happy with them but i was like instinctually wanted to buy them or pick one up just to be like oh just so they registered a sale but i was like i don't need to buy any first of all i'm not going to carry it back on the airport on the airplane but i also i already own them all but i i still have that gut feeling of like oh i should just buy one of these so yeah, we're, we are so weird as comic book collectors because I do the same thing. When I go to other states to travel or I go to other states for work, I always pop into a local comic shop because I'm like, oh, I want to see what they have. Like what are they doing differently? Like, And I, I think it is our version of extramarital affairs. Like I think it's our way of straying you know, from our home shop, like living on the edge and living dangerously. And, and I'll always text my wife when I'm in a new city like, hey, heading out. And she's like checking out a new comic book shop. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, good. You do you. She's like, you know, she's like I, I don't worry at all that you travel for work. Because the worst thing you're going to come home with is not VD, but in fact a stack of comics that you probably could have bought at your local store, but are are extra exotic because they're from Hoboken, you know, or something like so. <laughs> woo! Yeah, exactly. Like woo! Super this master. This master of kung fu treasury is all the way from Hoboken. Yeah, that's very <laughs> exciting stuff. Yeah, that that is one of the. I guess side benefits to, to marrying a nerd, whether it be you know whatever gender you're talking about, you just know that the the the, the nerd that you've married, their idea of excitement is like you just said, finding comics displayed in a new way. That's their <laughs> that's the big excitement. So yeah, I said I, I I almost wish there were still some treasures for me left to buy because I'd like to keep on the hunt, but I pretty much have them all at this point. So so anyway, well very cool. So, so let's let's talk about the book we're here to discuss, which is JLA Heaven's Ladder. As I mentioned, it came out in two thousand. It's by Mark Wade, Brian Hitch, Andy Lanning, Paul Nearing, Laura Martin, uh, Ney Dupuy, and Ken Lopez. Now, before we get to the plot, such as it is, the literal universe-spanning plot, why did you want to talk about this one? Well, I think for me, this is the the last original treasury that I bought, which it, well, I mean, actually, maybe one of the last original treasuries, so that may explain it. But when I when we you and I were talking about recording together. Uh, I think I'd reached out to you about Silver Surfer Black because I really loved yes. that mini. And, and the episode you guys did was phenomenal. And and we were talking about, oh, what could we, we cover? And I thought about this because I was so excited when this came out. This was really the peak of you know Grant Morrison, Howard Porter. Their JLA run had just ended. Mark Wade had just stepped in with Brian Hitch. And that book was you know really one of the best books on the shelves. And this was such an interesting project, and it was really a – such a showcase for Hitch's art that I really I wanted to talk about it. And in particular, oddly, I don't think it's a work that has resonated. Like I don't think it's something people think of as sort of a landmark work or or look back on super fondly. And even when I reached out, you were like, oh, hey, funny. No one's brought this one up yet. No, and so I was yeah. really excited to talk about it because I thought it was a chance to talk about sort of a modern original treasury. I, I thought it was a cool chance to cover a work that probably doesn't get enough attention. All right, gotcha. Yeah, I will say at the time, this came out right around the same time that those Alex Ross 
uh, Paul Dini treasuries came out, mm-hmm. and I love those things unreservedly. Uh, Superman, Peace on Earth, Batman, War on Crime, uh, Wonder Woman, Spirit of Truth, uh, Shazam, Power of Hope, and JLA, Liberty, Justice, plus the sort of Secret Origins sort of half book. And then, you know, I knew that those were of a piece. You know, those guys were producing these specific books, and they wanted to do it in the treasury format because Alex Ross is a giant fan, and he had the – him and Dini had the, the sort of uh, industry pull to get them produced at that size. And I thought, well, these are these are kind of a mini miniseries. Uh, and then when this one came out, I thought, ooh – we're now DC's now doing another treasury, and I really thought, oh, DC's doing treasuries again. Like that's mm-hmm. it. This is again. And then no, like this was it. <laughs> they stopped doing them after that. I was like, oh, okay. And this was the last, other than um, some hardcover reprints that they've done of the Bible and Superman versus Muhammad Ali. This has pretty much been it for DC in the treasury format. So it, it is weird that this thing. Uh, clearly was designed as a kickoff to the, as you mentioned, the Wade Hitch run on Justice mm-hmm. League, which is fun. It's kind of like doing a, a like a one and a half hour, you know, first episode of a TV show when the rest of the episodes are a half hour. It's kind of mm-hmm. like a big, hey, everybody, we're making our, you know, we're 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 planting our flag here. And then I really thought this would be, oh, all these different creators are going to be doing treasuries again. And then no. Didn't quite happen. So, okay, but we're happy to have what we have here. So, as I mentioned, the, the book is called JLA Heaven's Ladder. There is no story title. It's just simply called JLA Heaven's Ladder. So, while at the Watchtower, the Justice League watch as a massive craft skewers the Earth and takes it away. They race to the teleporters in order to reach the planet before it is out of range. Once uh, they are there, they attempt to quell the panic experienced by Earth's populace. Batman, investigating a burnt-out body in Gotham City, is called away to coordinate peacekeeping efforts while the rest of the League make their way to the vessel, which has captured numerous other planets along with the Earth. They discover that the worlds have been taken by an ancient race, the Quantum Mechanics, which has, been suddenly, which has suddenly been confronted with the realization of its own mortality. So they have planted sleepers on each world to learn of its concept of the afterlife, and it brought them together in order to build a heaven. However, some of their own, simply known as zealots, oppose this idea and attempt to kill each sleeper. The JLA intervenes to bring each one, embodying a race's concept of the afterlife, safely together from various planets, including Rond, Thanagar, and Gemworld. At the last moment, Batman realizes that the Earth's sleeper was actually the dead body he was investigating, killed by a zealot who took his place, jeopardizing the entire plan. The JLA have to demonstrate to the mechanics how all life is interconnected and use this unity to overcome the zealots. They do this by locking hands and being an example to the mechanics on how to connect, not separate. As the mechanics achieve their goal, all the worlds are returned to their rightful place, and across the galaxy, sentient beings experience a moment of deep bliss, a parting thank you gift from the quantum mechanics. Superman suggests members of the JLA split up into groups and help each continent clean up and restore order. All right, obviously there is way more that goes on in this massive, huge story, but I just wanted to kind of boil down as as sort of much as possible. So, all right, we have to get into this. So, I mean... Where do you want to start, John? I mean, how, how do you how do you feel about the the notion of sort of superheroes intermixing with the idea of uh, religion and spiritual beliefs? I really loved this. I I loved the thesis of this book. So I'm an English teacher, and I'm I'm always kind of looking for that for the thesis. Like, what's the core of a work, or you know, what's the the through line? And I love that moment when they realize that these they and you know Adam nicknames them the quantum mechanics, and that they're they're building their own heaven through sort of all of these other religions from these other planets. And I was like, God, what a really cool idea 
for a comic. And I, and it, it you know, kind of took me back because, you know, when I was in the classroom, I used to teach um, Greek philosophy. I used to teach at this big philosophy unit to my sophomores. And we would kind of take this smattering, this like, you know, hors d'oeuvre platter of world philosophies and, and look at them. And I would tie them under Plato, who kind of believed that like in, in search for truth, any path takes you to truth, which is kind of a cool way to like unify, hey, whatever you believe is cool. And and so it reminded me of that. And and I really liked that as a premise for a book with a JLA, especially this JLA, because this is right at the end of the Morrison era. And Morrison had purposely built a pantheon of gods team, right? Like like he even had 12 members to, to reflect the main gods of Greek mythology. And I think Wade is is kind of picking up what Morrison's putting down and saying, well, you built them to be gods on Earth. Now let's have the gods on Earth encounter the gods of the universe. And I thought that was just really cool. I thought that was nice kind of metatextual reflection on the on the run he was he was following i always appreciate when uh, a, a creator who is working in the treasury format especially when it's something like this when it's all original you're building it you're you're creating it to to be printed at this size as opposed to most treasuries which are reprints uh that they, they, they go for that big widescreen scale that kind mm-hmm. of Irwin allen Although I guess that's an old reference. I'm sorry, everybody. I guess you could say, you know, whatever the modern modern MCU movie, I guess, is the modern equivalent of that, where it's like, you know, hugeosity, you know, mm-hmm. big. And Mark Wade could not literally be working any bigger. I mean, there is a page where we see a couple of dozen planets organized into a DNA strand. I mean, that's how large the scale we're talking about. And there's even a reference to that where they talk about the to the quantum mechanics. The beings that live on these planets are but ants, or not not even ants, are like paramecium. Mm-hmm. They're so small in comparison. And then there's even a line, I think, where Adam says, now you know how I feel. Because he's, <laughs> of course, scaled down even further. So, I mean, Wade is, Wade is swinging for the fences here yeah. with this story, which I appreciate. And, of course, the artwork uh, there, too, Brian Hitch and Andy Lanning and Paul Neary, it's the same thing. It's like just these massively huge scales where you're going to these other planets and everything is just, you know, everything's just widescreen. And so I do appreciate that. I mean, the, the, the third page or fourth page of the story is a double page spread of this impossibly huge ship skewering the earth. And it reminds one of the opening shot of star Wars where the star mm-hmm. destroyer comes in. I mean, that legendary shot, but I mean, right there, Wade is sort of like saying, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is the story we're telling. This is not going to be some small story. This is going to be the biggest thing you can imagine because, hey, we're doing the book at this size. And I, I appreciate uh, that going into it with that idea. Yeah, I do too. And I think I love when writers and artists are clearly on the same page in their ambition. And it was clear this is a really young Brian Hitch, right? Like he's only a year off of the authority at this point. And he hasn't been, he's not like a, a super veteran of comics just yet. And I love the fact that. Clearly, that the splash page you talked about, the like third and fourth page, clearly Wade and, and Hitch were on the phone together, and Wade was like, "Yeah, I'm thinking of like the biggest ship you've ever seen, like Tau Two, basically, like galactic, you know, like a solar system sized ship, you know. That, do you think you could draw that?" And I think Brian Hitch went like, "Are you paying me by the line? Because mm-hmm. I can't even." And, and I, this is something I was so excited to talk to you about with this issue because I'm not an artist in any way, and and with your background. Like I, this is a dumb question, but it's the only way I could encapsulate this. How long do you think it took him to draw? Because he draws every individual line on this ship. I mean, it's it's almost like 
George Perez, you know, mainlining rubble, you know, like when, like, when George, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, Perez rubble, or, or it reminds me of John Byrne, you know, his early, like, Fantastic Four stuff, where sometimes he'd have these machines like this, but how long do you think this took? I mean, what's, what is the, what, like, what's the magnitude of work to design something like this? That's a good question. I mean, I would, I don't think I've really seen too much Brian Hitch pencils by themselves, so I don't know how tightly he pencils these things. I mean, to me, uh, anything that involves buildings or very hard straight lines that really don't uh, forgive much uh, when, when you're not being precise, it really falls on the anchor. Uh, oh, okay. To do all this stuff. Now, again, if Brian Hitch draws very exacting pencils, then he's pretty much drawing it just as hard uh, as my, as the inkers, and the inkers are just following him along. But if he's kind of looser, uh, then it really does fall on either Andy Landing or Paul Neary or maybe both to really put this there because they're the ones who have to get out their rapidographs and just get these straight lines and just draw them. I That's the kind of thing where I almost think that you – Again, it depends on your point of view. Back when I was doing freelance illustration uh, and I had a massive project to work on, I tended to work on the harder stuff first to get Mm -hmm. it out of the way and then kind of relax a little. Like, all right, I got the hard one done. Now let's move on to the easy ones. So I could – it all depends on how you like to work. I could see uh, Brian Hitch saying, let me do this first and just get it off the – get it off. But I would imagine this has got to be probably at least a day or two's worth of work. To oh, do wow. these things, I mean, just to sit there and once you've laid it out, to sit here and and do it all in. And I know that um he does get some help in places where there are some photographic elements yeah. dropped into this book. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what did you think about th- those those parts? So I was I'm okay with it because of the time. You know, it's it's. I mean, it's not like Batman Digital Justice or something. It's not you know, so so affixed. Wow, there's a reference. <laughs> it's not that like you know, it doesn't take me out like that. Um, I think, in fact, they're. I think they're well done, considering they're 20 years old. They still look really nice, mm-hmm. and I, I I wouldn't say they in any way pulled me out of the story, but in retrospect, you know, I think I would have preferred Hitch and Neary's work versus you know, a, a Photoshopped, you know, picture of earth, but I get what they were doing. And I do remember at the time being sort of, um, uh, not astounded, but like, you know, kind of, uh, really impressed by it. Like, Oh wow, that's, that's a really neat thing. They probably couldn't have done in a normal comic. So what about you? Is it, did it, did it pull you out? Yeah, I have to say that's one of the elements I'm not a big fan of is, is the photographic effects worked in. I just don't think they look right. Uh, to me, they're just, they're just like, well, why am I sudden I'm looking at a photo of, of Earth uh, as opposed to all these black and white drawings? And I know that that's been something that artists have done over the years. Jack Kirby certainly did it a lot in those collages that he used to do. Uh-huh. I, think, I think Kirby's worked better. I mean, of course, because it's Jack Kirby. But, I mean, I think Kirby's worked better because I think when he did those collages, it was meant to be disorienting. Yeah. And a little off kilter of like, wait, this thing is drawn and then this other thing is a photo. And it was meant to be very discordant and strange. And to me, it worked. Um, but in here, I do kind of wish it was just drawn uh, drawn out. But that's a very minor detail. Again, I, I appreciate the, the scale of this thing. I don't even know how you know how you pace yourself to do a book of this massive size. I mean, there's again, on top of it, not only is he doing all these huge elements with all these buildings and ships. I mean, there's another page fill, filled with like 50 spaceships. Oh, that's a uh, great Which page. is unbelievable. It reminds you of like the final scene, the final sequence of like Return of the Jedi or something. There's mm-hmm. just a thousand ships flying. But I mean, on top of it, he's also got to draw 
at least six or seven characters in almost every page and every panel uh, by itself. And he does manage to give – there are some nice – I always appreciate it when artists stop the story for a moment to do like a full page or just kind of pause a little. Yeah. And I like that. There's a page here where Superman sort of is sort of summing up the mission and there's this, this big shot of him with all the jail layers behind him. And there's all the – it's in like almost monochrome because they're in kind of like a DEF CON situation and all the red light is on. Like that looks really cool. And I also love uh, Plastic Man. Yeah, in this story. I love. I, I. First of all, I've always said Plastic Man belongs in the Justice League. I love Elongated Man, but I've always thought Plastic Man belonged in the JLA. I was happy when he joined the team, and I love the idea that he, through his shape shifting, is always commenting mm-hmm. on what is going on at any given moment. I really like that detail. It, it manages to put a little bit of characterization without actually having to have any dialogue of like, oh, here's Plastic Man's head exploding in a plastic way because he's because he's terrified i love him in this book i think he's really fun yeah he's like almost like a, a, a greek chorus but you know yes. filled with marx brothers like it's right it is, yes perfect it's awesome yeah the, the picture you're talking about where he's just wigging out while superman's sort of contemplative and and somber and and, and it's such a nice juxtaposition and then there's a part at the end where it looked like they were going to win, and then all of a sudden these you know these adversaries are are storming the gates, and it looks like everything's going to turn, and he turns into a, a fat opera singer, and yeah, he starts yeah. singing "It's Over," and it's just this great little moment of like like you said, he doesn't get any actual you know real character development in this, but he is absolutely one of the stars, and, and you know and, it, and it's great, it's a great use of that character. Yeah, it was really cool. Like he when uh, when Steel and Green Lantern and him go to Mecca yeah. and he turns into like a, the, the genie from Aladdin a little <laughs> bit. Where he, do you think they're hearing him? And I, that, I like that. I like that moment too, a lot where, where, you know, all the Muslims are, are facing towards Mecca. Uh, 50,000 of them are praying on Mecca at daybreak and they turn around to look at the sunrise. And all they see is this spaceship, uh, which I think is just a really great moment. I think that's really, really sharp. Uh, the scenes with uh, Batman. I like a lot. I like that, you know, of course, I mean, there's the, the, the trope of, like, what does Batman add to any Justice League story when the scale is this large? Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that he's off to the side. Uh, I mean, he certainly is part of the mission because he figures out the thing with the, 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 the sleeper agent and stuff like that. But I like that he's at Earth. Uh, I, first of all, I love the intro. It's all done in all purples where they mm-hmm. discovers the corpse and they think it's the, pen, the work of the penguin. Uh, but I like that he's kind of off to the side and he's in the background figuring all this stuff out while Superman and Wonder Woman are doing like literally the heavy lifting where they're like moving planets by themselves or something like that. Well, it's such a nice play of where the JLA was at this time too, because they're like you said, they're literally trying to lift the you know the the toothpick that speared the olive of Earth, you know, in this big martini, and they are are doing this god level lifting, and they even think to themselves, "Oh, we need Bruce. Like, we can't mm-hmm. do this without him. We can't do this without somebody." basically coordinating everything and trying to figure it out. And I love that because I, I know I don't love the Morrison sort of bat God. I, I like, I like mm-hmm. a, my Batman more, a bit more friendly and fallible. And, you know, I, I, I definitely like a more human Batman, but I do. One of the things I do like is that you, after Morrison's run on JLA, you never doubted why Batman needed to be there. And I think that's Wade picks that up without him having to be the bat God. Cause he actually does make a mistake. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't identify this murdered vic- murder victim correctly in time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to stop this sleeper agent. And, you know, and Jim Gordon's got to feel especially bad because they're standing in, the, in that opening scene and they're looking at the dead body. And Jim Gordon's like, 
well, if that isn't a, a penguin fire umbrella victim, then I, you know, I'll turn <laughs> my badge in. And it's like, well, Jim, maybe it's time because <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that's not what you're seeing, buddy. Uh, I also really like that Aquaman gets some cool things to do. Yes. I mean, Aquaman typically in a lot of these big stories doesn't kind of holds up the rear. I like that he gets to kind of go into the he, – he swims into what looks like a pool and it's it's – it looks like water, but it's not really water. It's not liquid. He even says it's something alive. It's literally like the, the, the captors themselves, this race, the quantum mechanics, they sort of – he's swimming in like their membranes almost. And they, they go inside of him and he can communicate with them. I like that whole stuff. I think that, that whole sequence is really cool that he's like, wait a minute. This isn't liquid and he can, he can swim in it, but it's not liquid as he thinks. It's actually the beings themselves. He's like inside their own existence, which I think is cool. Because I, Aquaman to me never really gets a chance to kind of like shine in these. And I, I, I already mentioned the Alex Ross, Paul Dini books. I never fully got over the fact that Aquaman didn't get one of those books to himself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love the Shazam one. It's one of my, it's probably my favorite of the four. In fact, I covered it on the show with Dr. Ange. I would never give that book up, but I always am a little disappointed that it's Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Shazam, not <laughs> Superman, Batman, yeah. Wonder Woman, Aquaman. But luckily, uh, Wade and Wade's a fan of Aquaman. We know that he's given interviews and stuff. So I love that Aquaman gets cool stuff to do. I always appreciate that. Well, and the the scene you mentioned is really important because there's such an interesting push and pull in this book, and it's purposeful. They do it from the beginning because the book opens with Adam at microscopic size inside, you know, the Martian Manhunter's body. Yeah. He's doing a whole fantastic voyage thing. Oh, yeah, battling the the macrobe, who's like some villain we've never heard of. We only get a, like a two-panel thing. But we, we start inside, and then we blow up outside where suddenly this ship, you know, the size of a solar system stills the Earth. And then we keep going in and out, right? Like Aquaman goes into this membrane and then actually into the memories of this race all the way back to the beginning of time. And then we zoom back out to the race having stolen these planets and then we zoom back in to the atom and, and you know figuring out this this big secret that helps kind of save the day and i love that cuz it's it's clearly very purposefully done there's a reason ray palmer is kind of our gateway character and and it it all kind of circles for me it all cinches for me and it's page 13 superman looks up or uh, sorry um john looks up and he sees the you know the row of planets and he says we are so small before this and Adam, you know, like you said, Adam says, like, you know, how do you think I feel? But it's this <laughs> really cool moment because in the ranks of the JLA, you know, John Jones is what one of the three most powerful members of all time. Like he's a, you know, the Martian Superman basically. And what is Ray Palmer to him? What is a guy who can shrink down compared to that? But then that's echoed in the greater arc of the story, which is like, what are we compared to these quantum mechanics who are building heaven? And yet at the end of the day, it's Ray Palmer who who figures it out and saves the day. So I love that. And then that Aquaman moment for me really solidifies it because it is, again, it's that push and pull. It's the, you know, the going in, the going to the very personal to get to the very universal. And I think Wade's just like at the top of his game and the way he structures the book. I, I think it's really impressive. Yeah. And he also uh, kind of leans into the Gardner Fox uh, style of JLA writing. And by, by the way, if you like Gardner Fox style, uh, JLA stories. Uh, make sure you tune into next month's episode of Treasure Cast. That's all I'll say. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, I like when. Of course, the the JLAers split up because that's what you do with JLA mm -hmm. stories, especially when you have multiple locations. And Flash and Aquaman go to Durlin, 
and and they fight all the they fight all the the Durlins are fighting each other, and then Aquaman sort of finishes the battle by getting by by talking to a couple of these Durlin sea creatures, and he just gets one of them to thrash its tail uh, into the ocean, and he just knocks all the Durlins on their asses. Which <laughs> I love that moment. It's just this giant splash, and it's it's one of those things that I would love to see in an Aquaman two movie. If they ever yeah. actually make that movie, I have my doubts they're ever going to make it, but, uh, but I love that's, I mean, to me, that's the stuff I love when Aquaman is able to, you know, the, he even has the line about, out, you know, he chides flash. He's like outclassed you say, and flash is coughing and sticking, you know, getting the water out. He's like, Oh, I stand corrected. And he's like, uh, you mentally commanded a Durlin water clan. And he's like, well, they're not strictly sea life, but I was able to get my basic point across. I just love all that. I love yeah. all that kind of stuff. That's he just knocks them all down. And then the, at the bottom panel, you see them all laying there unconscious. I just, I just <laughs> dig that so much. Well, and this is so cool too, because this is Mark Wade, DC historian, as well yeah. as Mark Wade, great writer, because technically if they are on Durla at this time, one of those Durlins is R.J. Brand, is the guy who founds the Legion and, and, and in the Whoa. 31st century because he gets transposed in, in time and is the father of Reap Daggle, the chameleon boy. In fact, they mention the Daggle clan when they yes, land they on do. the planet. And I'm like, oh, Mark Wade. And then, and then the very next visit is to Kalu, you know, the home of Brainiac, you know, Brainiac 5. So it's really cool that not only – and he doesn't, he doesn't get cute about it. And he, I mean the Daggle thing's a little cute, but he doesn't get like overly, you know, uh, focused on it. And he doesn't make you have to know, you know, Legion history to get it. But if you're a Legion fan and you're reading this, it's a really nice touch. Like I love that he went to – they went to Durla and Kalu and, you know, and then he goes to Ron because you know he's a big Adam Strange fan. And, yep, and yep, yep. Gemworld and, you know, of the, of the visits, of the visits to the other planets where they start talking about their – the afterlife as seen by these plans. What was your favorite? Like, what do you think was the most interesting version of the afterlife? Hmm. That's a good, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I didn't really think what, I'm not prepared for that to answer that just yet. What, what was yours? I'm throwing that off to you. Yeah. I have to think about this as I'm looking at it again. I really, I love the Kaluan afterlife, which is this idea that they're, you know, they're this race of, you know, 12th level intellects and that they believe in this sort of – basically heaven is the cloud. Like when you die, your consciousness and your knowledge is uploaded into this greater knowledge, this greater sort of database, and you become all data. Like you become merged with it. So everything you know is added to the collective knowledge, and then everything in the collective knowledge you acquire. So like so like death isn't anything sad. It's actually something to be celebrated, which I was like, oh, that is super cool. Like that makes total sense for that race. Have you ever seen any episodes of uh, Black Mirror, that TV show? Well, so unfortunately, I did not listen to literally every single person who told me to watch the show. And I started with episode one, um, which, you know, put me off Black Mirror and Bacon <laughs> for a uh, while. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I have not turned back in, though I know I need to at some point. It's, 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 if you like, yeah, that's a tough show to start with the first episode because it's all about. Uh, yeah, uh, but there there is a there is a later episode which is uh, to me by far the best episode called San Junipero, mm -hmm. which is, part of the hook is about living the afterlife in a giant database. Oh, and, that's really cool. and and that it is it's it's one of the few Black Mirrors that's actually kind of uplifting as opposed to just presenting a nightmarish you know nightmarish dystopia kind of world. And it features two wonderful performances, but it has that same hook of like, well, is that really a bad thing? I mean we're all living inside our own heads in some way. I mean, what's to say what's real and what's not. Mm -hmm. So if you get to live a wonderful life permanently inside of a database, 
what's the difference kind of thing. I mean, they, I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, but it reminded me of that, of that, that sequence. Uh, so, I mean, I, I did enjoy that uh, quite a bit. Um, I do, as you mentioned about going to Ran with Adam Strange. I mean, again, the, the Mark Wade loves Adam Strange. We all love Adam Strange. Oh, yeah. I love it when he shows up in these stories. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mean, living in a perfect, in a computer database. I mean, I don't, it, Part of me is a little terrified of that, of that notion, <laughs> but I, that's probably how I'm living my life right now anyway. So I don't know. Maybe I would go with that one. It's probably the most <laughs> ideal version of the afterlife in, in some way. Um, I do – again, I like the one – we just got that one panel on Thanagar where uh-huh. they talk about – describe heaven as an endless sky, a place where their war against gravity has finally been won. And then Aquaman talks about um, what Atlanteans believe is they become one with the ocean. And just become part of it, and it's sort of a self-renewing thing. And that reminds me a lot of kind of Buddhism in some ways. There's a uh-huh. lot of talk about that in my favorite book, The Razor's Edge. There's something very uh, sort of calming about that. The idea that you know you just kind of your essence goes on to live somewhere else, and it just becomes part of a greater collective. There's something very I don't know soothing about that too. I kind of like that. Um, the one on the uh, the the uh, where they go to the mis- what's the fifth dimension. I believe oh, yeah. they, where they get where, where all of a sudden Superman and Adam become like the flat uh, Ben Ray dot Ben Day dot things. <laughs> I thought was pretty cool, but uh, that's I, what did you think of that sequence? I loved it. I and and he's he's borrowing from Morrison because the entire idea that the fifth dimension sees us or sees our favorite characters two dimensionally uh, is is right out of the Lightning Saga. This this five-part arc in Morrison and Porter's JLA book, which is fantastic. And then even the, and I love this bit, the idea that their version of, of saying like, oh God is saying, oh, oh, and, and Adam interprets it as pain. Like, oh, is their God pain? Yes. And yeah. Superman's like, no, it's, it's A-E-I-O-U. Like in a world of syllables of, of Mixie's Pitlick, vowels would be their sort of God. And I'm like, Oh, and as an English teacher, I was like, you know, my head exploded. I was like, Oh my God, like that's the best thing ever. And then of course I was like, I love vowels, which is the weirdest moment of all time. But you know, um, and so I was definitely with them and I like, I love the, that sequence, especially because, uh, is it, is it her last name? Dupuy, Laura Dupuy. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Okay. But I didn't realize she would become Laura Martin. That makes total sense. Yep. She's, she's the secret sauce of this book. I mean, even though it's brilliantly written and, and incredibly penciled and inked, the colors are just so dynamic. And then her use of color scheme is, I mean, to, to dictate mood and danger. And, you know, we get this, you know, that trip to Durla is, is really seeped in these like sort of tones of danger, these like oranges and reds and yellows. And then Kalu is very sterile you know, very sort of machine-like. And then we get to the fifth dimension and it's all color. You know, it's just mm-hmm. pop, pop, pop of color. And that just mimics what's happening there so nicely that I, I loved it. I loved that section. And I also, there's this nice moment where, you know, Adam, I love that it's it's Adam and Superman teaming mm-hmm. up because that's, mm-hmm. that's not a team up I've seen a lot before. And, you know, you think like, well, what is, what is Ray Palmer going to have, you know, <laughs> like what is he bringing to this table? And it's just such a great moment when, Ray is like, how can we do anything? You know, we're two dimensional. What are we gonna do? Give him paper cuts? And Superman's like, no, yeah, let's figure this out. And she's like, because he's Superman, like comes up with an answer and saves the day. And I really like that. I that that hope of you know Superman as as unflappable is, is sort of steeped throughout the whole book. And I really like that. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Laura Dupuis, Laura Martin's colors, because uh, I, I was actually friends with Laura back in the day. I haven't talked to oh, her in a cool. long time. But, uh, but I mean, I remember I even I, I complimented her on this book when it came out, because she does do a great job on the color. That sequence with Green Lantern and Wonder Woman, oh. where Wonder Woman comes out of that fire, where she's like, by making, you know, we make the extraordinary look easy. That's how you ensure your eternal legacy, is that basically you're not forgotten. Uh, which recalls to me the line from Star Trek Two, where you know mm-hmm. McCoy says Spock's not gone as long as we remember him. But there, when when she lands into the into the, like the fires and Green Lantern looks over, and it's all wordless, uh, where they look, he looks through the smoke and she sees her come out and she's standing there with her muscles toned, and it's all reds, oranges, and yellows, and she's holding the lasso. And they're all – even all the aliens are like, oh, OK. They're like yeah. – you know. and he even says, Diane, I wouldn't worry about your place in history. I love that. It, that's a great, fun sequence. And it's, again, really put across entirely by the art, by by Lan, you know, by Hitch and Lanning and, and Neary and Laura Dupuy. They do a great job. And like you said, I like when they go to the, the computer's role because it looks like they're inside a microchip. Mm-hmm. There's all that stuff. So, yeah. And all the stuff with Batman too. Again, I mentioned when he's in Gotham City, it's all purples. But then he spends the rest of the story mostly in the Batcave and all the light is green. He's just yep. bathed in the green light from his from his screen. Uh, which I like a lot. Um, I I asked you earlier about the uh, photographic effects. And another thing I wanted to ask is this was a big thing that happened right after Photoshop came in with comics was making the super speedster characters blurry because you yeah. could do that with Photoshop. And it's sort of funny. I don't think anybody does that anymore. I think it was a thing that everybody's like, oh, we can do this. And it was <laughs> done all over the place. And now you – what do you – how does it look to your eyes 20 years later? It's you know, it's okay. And again, it, it does feel like Bob got a Photoshop license. You know, it does, <laughs> it, it does feel a little bit like somebody was going a little crazy. Nothing will ever beat Carmine Infantino's speed lines for me. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I just I, – and I'm not – the world's biggest Infantino fan because when I first met his work, it was everybody standing with their hands in pockets facing forward, like all the who's who entries. Um, But, but I, I, you know, nothing will ever kind of compare to the speed lines for me for that. So again, I was really forgiving of it because I think it's, it's of a time and it reminded me of that. And the, and the other thing too, is the, the restraint they showed, you know, I don't think there's anything in here that's egregious. I don't think they, I think they used, you know, this new technology that was really cool at the time, but they didn't make the technology, the art or the story. Like, like, you know, it was a dumb example, but it's true. Like something like Batman Digital Justice, where it was just like, hey, look how neat these 8-bit boxy Batman are, you know. And this one's all about the story and art. Hitch and Dupuis and, and Neary, they're all still the stars. So I'm okay with it. But, yeah, I don't miss it. I'll, you know, I'll be really honest with you. I'm, I'm okay if, if just a few – you know, lines drawn the opposite direction. I get it. I get he's moving fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel I felt like an old curmudgeon, although I feel like that most of the time. But when I <laughs> when I saw those flash blurry lines, I was like, ah, eh, you can just draw the multiple images of him running. It's fine. You know, yeah. I, we don't need the Photoshop filter. I appreciate it. But then I also know that I remember when I got for Photoshop for the first time and you were like, ooh, I could add all sorts <laughs> of, you know, oh, bevel and bevel and emboss. Let's do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't help it. So it is it is uh, what it is of its time. Uh, later on, finally, the JLA, I did mention that Batman mostly stays out of the action, but until the end, actually, where the one zealot shows up and he's like 100 feet tall and Superman gets the line, we'll handle God. And yeah. it's literally just like, flying up to, uh, to, to go after him. And then the guy says, I will not be handled by paramecia. 
Meanwhile, all that stuff is going on, and Batman's down at the down at the bottom. And then there's this great thing of Superman and Wonder Woman flying up and like hitting him in the chin. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Bo- oh, no, I'm sorry, not Superman, Martian Manhunter, and Wonder Woman flying up and hitting the Zealot in the chin, which I think is a great. They're they're both there like in unison, which is really cool. I like all that. Uh, and then I, I did want to ask you though, as I'm as I'm, I was looking at some of the reviews. Uh-huh. The story in the in the intervening years, and some people have taken this as sort of like a dismissal of atheism, as kind of like, well, the atheists uh-huh. are the bad guys in this. And I, I, I have to say, I never took it like that. I could sort of see that if you want to read that into it, it's there. But I, I'm not. I should own up. I'm not religious at all. I lean much more toward atheism than I do any sort of organized religion. But I didn't take this as any sort of attack on that belief system in any way. Yeah, I, so I'm Jewish, so I'm not religious either. Um, <laughs> which, which every Jewish listener right now is laughing because that's actually completely true. Um, so, um, so I, di- I didn't, I didn't see that at all. In fact, I thought you were going a very di- different direction when I read this. And this may just be a 2020 lens. I read it much more politically, like mm. this idea of assimilation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the difference between assimilation and unity, and the difference between the loss of individuality and the sublimation of greed for the better, for the greater good. Like I almost saw it as a little sort of, you know, uh, you know, capitalism. It, it's most pure, maybe capitalism versus socialism from a 2020 lens, maybe a destructive capitalism versus, you know, everybody helping each other out, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And, and, uh, you know, even, and I was way reading into this and I don't want to have people read this into it, but even the color scheme, you know, where the good guys are blue and the bad guys are red, which is simplistic. And I'm not mm. implying that, you know, all Republicans are evil, just the main one. Um, and so, um, you know, so anyway, even that, I think I was like, well, that's, I think a viable read of the tension between, you know, uh, sublimation and, and the, the greater good. Cause I actually kind of related to the adversary at one point when he's like, this is not how we've ever lived, and I'd rather die myself than change everything I believe in just to join a group. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like I can see that in some mm-hmm. cases, and in some cases that would be a really destructive impulse. In some cases that would be a really heroic and brave impulse, and I liked that actually. I, I didn't see anything about atheism. In fact, in fact, I would think it's the it's, – I don't know. I, I think it's it's more interesting because it's the idea that we all construct our own – view of the afterlife, even if our view of the afterlife is that there is no afterlife, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. that's an equally valid construction. Yeah, no, I didn't see that at all. It's, that's funny. I, I think, you know, in, in my reading of it, I actually kind of could have done without the whole adversary piece. I thought this was a really interesting philosophical superhero story. And I think Wade and Hitch felt almost the need to put a big bad guy to have a big bad guy battle. Yes. Again. And yes. I really could have done without that. I, I like it better as a as a Star Trek episode. I like it better as a you know a, a, the Fifth Element you know part is fun, but I, I like it better as just a, a philosophical story where they help this race achieve its view of heaven. Like it, I mean, it would have been the perfect Star Trek episode of JLA. And, and so I just I just didn't think that whole piece was necessary. So it's actually kind of my least favorite part of the book. What did you think of that? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Star Trek because up until that part where the, the zealot turns into a giant red guy and just starts smashing stuff, this thing really is in a lot of ways kind of like Star Trek the motion picture. Uh-huh. It really is kind of more a think piece yeah. about about heaven with some superheroes mixed in. And then, yeah, like, I, like you said, it does feel a little like – 
I think Wade and maybe Hitch or whoever, maybe just Wade because he wrote the story, but they sort of figured it out that, you know what, if we're going to do a giant treasury comic starring the Justice League, there has to be a big action finale. Sure. Yeah. So we have to have a big red guy smashing stuff. And it did feel a little like, oh, there's yet it. I mean, because not just a couple of pages before that, we have the turn where we find out that the zealot um, is the sleeper agent, that the guy that they think is the 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 you know the guy who's going to be the, the guy from Earth uh, is is a representative of the quantum mechanics is actually not. He's actually the zealot, and he replaced that guy. So you're like, you have that turn, and then there's another turn. We're like, oh, now we're having a big action sequence. Yeah. And then politically, I, I have to say, and obviously this is not anything that Wade could have guessed in 2000, but the, the part near the very end where the Justice League all join hands yeah. to teach the quantum mechanics about togetherness, where super, I think it's. Superman, I, it's kind of hard because the light is so uh, blinding, but I think it's Superman, the one who says it, where he says, uh, there's only a sense of nobility and wonder to the universe that cannot be cataloged, only shared, and only realized when we create connections instead of barriers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, you could just take the word barrier and replace it with wall, yeah. and you've got 2020 politics in a nutshell. So yeah, there is some, there is a political read to this if you want to have that. And I think that makes kind of for good stories is that the, that material's there if you want it. Or if you just want to enjoy this as an incredibly large-scale JLA story, that's there for you as well. You can take that read and just put the book down and be satisfied that you saw a really big action Justice League comic book story. You know, and they walk the line really nicely. They don't. They get political enough to be interesting, but not so political that it feels, you know, like this is a, a message book. Right. It's not you didactic know. or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And and I have to say, it's really interesting because when I read this twenty years ago. You know, we were just in a different place as a as a country. I was in a different place as a mm-hmm. person. I mean, I was uh, two thousand. Oh, so when I first read this, I was in my first year teaching, and and you are never more hopeful and also never more exhausted than in, in your <laughs> first year teaching because it's the first time you're confronted with both the the power you have to like really help a kid and potentially have the help you've given change that kid's life. Like I remember the first time I legitimately taught a kid how to write. To, in order to express themselves and how like transformative it was for that kid over the next few years because they were a freshman and I got to watch them kind of grow up. But you also realize the other side of it, which is like, oh, if I'm, if I'm off, if I say the wrong thing mm. in the wrong moment, I'm somebody's bad story. I'm somebody's mm. like, oh, I had this teacher one year who said this and it made me think that, you know, so you kind of, you're kind of wrestling with both of those pieces. You also wrestle with the, the lack of power where like, you know, you're just one person. You can't really combat, you know, abuse or, or poverty. And so there's all those kind of emotions. And I think when I read it 20 years ago uh, and being in that place sort of professionally and emotionally, I did I, – I, I, I connected to it in that manner of like, you, yeah, of course, you know, the, the power of hope. Yeah, that's, 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 that is the thing that changes the world. And, and even though the, the ending, you know, is a little fifth element, it is a little, you know, power of love, um, <laughs> I, was, I was really good with it. 20 years ago. Cause I was like, yep, that's, that's what I'm doing with my life. And 20 years later, I had, a, I had such a different, similar, but different reaction because, you know, when I reckon, when I said, Hey, you know, what about heaven's ladder? And you were like, cool, let's do it. I hadn't read this in years in probably maybe 15, 16 years. And I sat down and read it again and I got to the end and I was like, Oh my God, I needed this. Like, this mm. is, this is the universe, you know, to get a little new age, you know, yoga mom, like this is the universe <laughs> moving in my life. Like this is a, all of this crazy stuff is happening around us. And, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I have a job where my job impacts, you know, 
basically a million kids. And right now I'm very concerned about where those million kids are going to be on Monday morning. And, and, Mm. you know, what does that mean for our city and our, our, you know, community and everything. And, and I needed that like handholding moment of unity. And also I kind of want to photocopy that page and just tape it in the toilet paper aisle of every damn grocery store in my state to be like, Hey, maybe our version of holding hands right now is just, just get a one, get one pack of two ply. Like, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know, like whatever the small thing is we can do. So I don't know how you felt. I needed, I really needed this story right now. And I feel so much more emotionally connected to it than I did 20 years ago. I don't, did it resonate for you like that? Or am I just in a very different place? (laughs) Well, that's, that's, that's a great reaction to have though. I mean, that's wonderful. That's something that uh, talk about a sleeper cell. I mean, yeah. something that, you know, was created 20 years ago and it's just waiting dormant in the back of your closet for you to find it again and reread it and go, oh, yeah, this is totally relevant for me. Yeah. I mean, I haven't read a JLA comic in a very long time. I think the last time I really read JLA regularly was at the beginning of New 52. And oh. I mean, good Lord, that was 10 years. Oh, my God. I that know. was almost 10 years ago at this point. And, and you know, I, I, I know that I'm an old curmudgeon and yada, yada, yada and whatever. But I like the thing that always appealed to me about the Justice League um, is that they got along for the most yeah. part. And I, and I also appreciate that Marvel did it differently, that Stan Lee was like, no, 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 you know, we're going to have our team squabble. And that's fine. I like that, too. But but as a kid, I always wanted to be a member of the Justice League, not a member of the Avengers oh, or, or, or the X-Men or whatever, because to me, the Marvel guys are always sniping at one another. And I don't mm-hmm. I don't that's not what I want. I want to be part of a of a big happy team that hangs out in a satellite or a secret cave somewhere. And, and um, I did read another review of this where they said that uh, Wade writes, the justice league is kind of all getting along. And they thought that that was a little on the boring side. I actually like that. I like that. They're just focused on the mission. Yeah. Uh, they don't waste a whole lot of time with them. You know, like I, you mentioned about like the bat God. I'm glad that the bat God is not here. That Batman is just kind of, you know, yeah, he's Batman, but he's not like a dick. You know, yes. I mean, he's just no, kind of yeah. like, he's serious. And they even have that moment at the very end where they all end up uh, on the top of the UN building and, and everyone is smiling because they were given, like I mentioned, the parting gift from the mechanics where it's this moment of bliss. And Superman says to Batman, are you smiling? And Batman goes, me? No. And, I, you know, it's like, <laughs> super, like he knows that Superman knows that yeah. he's smiling, but he refuses to give into it. And I like that. I love all that stuff. And it's, it's, I'm just, ha- it made me happy to see the JLAers in sunlight. And then it features a great, Little joke at the end, I think, where Batman's he says, Batman's right. Everyone pick a continent, and Batman goes Antarctica. And Superman <laughs> just follows with people. <laughs> it's great. I love that idea because that would be me. I oh, would be yeah. the plastic man. I'd be like, can I just do that part where there's nobody around? Uh, you know. So uh, yeah, no, I, I, I don't. I will say I didn't have that same. It didn't have that same resonance with me that it did with you. But it was fun to reread this after so long because I think, like you, I probably haven't read it in 15 years. Uh, and it was nice to, to reexamine it and see this story of togetherness. Uh, because yeah, the JLA would not be hoarding toilet paper. Yeah, uh, exactly. They would they would be like, no, no, no. Let's everybody can have some. We're all going to be fine. Relax. And I sort of liked all that. So yeah, it was it was timely uh, that you suggested this kind of out of nowhere because it was like, oh wow, yeah, I didn't. No one had. No one else had ever said they wanted to do this book. So when you suggest I'm like, all right, perfect. So yeah, it was kind of a nice time to read it. Yeah, I think so too. And, and I actually have one last question for you, which may be a little weird. Um, I don't want this to be a heavy question. In fact, I want oh, it to be okay. more, more joyous. So at the end, the quantum mechanics, John, you know, 
Aquaman says, why can't I stop smiling? And, and John mm-hmm. says, you're not alone. There's not a sentient being in a galaxy who isn't experiencing a brief moment of transcendent bliss. So, Rob Kelly, where, what's your moment of transcendent bliss? Like, what's Whoa. something that just brings you just some, some real Batman smiley joy? Oh, boy. That's a, that is a deep, deep question. Um, okay. All right. I, I'll, I will, okay. I can answer. I mean, there's specific things I could talk about. There's movies that I put on sure. that just always make me feel good, whether it's like it's a Mad 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 Midworld or Star Trek Four or something. But I will, in a, in a smaller thing, I, I, my, life is mostly dictated by my schedule as is most people's um and my mornings are very hectic because i get up and i go do my exercising and i have to cool down and get to work and so i feel very harried every day because i'm just like i got to get it all in before you know and if i don't then i feel off and yada 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 I love the feeling of going to bed at night not having to be up in the morning oh yeah that doesn't happen much but it happens occasionally where life has just worked out where we just don't have a lot to do like the next day. And we don't have, and turning off the alarm and going to bed and not even necessarily to fall asleep. I mean to watch a movie or read or whatever. But just the freedom of knowing that when I'm falling asleep, I am not being forcibly awoken in a couple hours. It will just happen naturally. That really brings me joy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it does because I feel the cat on me in the middle of the night, and that <laughs> makes me feel good. So it really is that that is one of the simple pleasures that I have found where, like, going to bed and knowing I'll just get up when I get up. That is glorious. That's awesome. Yeah. No, that's a great feeling. Right, uh, yeah. So you got you to answer this. You got to answer that too now then. All right. So I, it's funny because I have this moment. I think a lot of – I think you and a lot of our listeners will relate to this. You know, I've been collecting comics since – uh, 1982. So, uh, and I, and I'm one of the few people I know who I've never stopped. You know how most people are like, Oh, I stopped when I was 15 because of girls. Well, right. I, you know, I didn't stop because of girls and, and I'd like to think it was a choice. Not that just, there were no girls interested in me <laughs> that made me stop. My choice, <laughs> um, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I never stopped. So I've actually uninterruptedly collected comics my whole life. So when I look at my collection or I look at comics or I think of comics, Every once in a while, I'll be like, oh, there's nothing I haven't seen or, you know, or I'll have made these like decisions about a comic for, or, a, or a decade of comics like the 90s or something. You know, and I'll say something like, oh, Starman was the only book worth reading in the 90s. Or, and I've gotten to this point in my life where, you know, I will – I'll go on Twitter and, and somebody will post a picture like, you know, some comic book from the 90s or something. And I'm like, oh, no, that series wasn't any good. I went, Do I have any issues of that? And I'll pull some from my box. And all of a sudden I start reading them and I'm just surprised and delighted to find this new thing I didn't realize that you know I had written off that is actually really good and really I love. And it just brings me that joy that you feel when you're reading a comic you haven't read before that's really good and reminds you of everything you love about the medium. And so I always – I have this weird moment in my head where that will happen and I have this little thing I always say to myself like, man, comics never disappoint. Like – Everything else in life, you know, there's just – it's subject to whim and, you know, you could lose a job. You could, you know, have have a relationship and things like that. But comics never disappoint, man. There's always something else to dip back into that I haven't read that's really great or something new that's coming down the pike. And so I think that's my little moment of transcendent bliss. I mean, you know, obviously there's, you know, family, birth of my child, yada, yada, yada. But like a good comic (laughs) – 
is really is that moment for me. So so yeah, that's my moment of transcendent bliss. <laughs> I, I I I should end the show there because that's a beautiful sentiment. But I do it reminds me of something uh, Chris Franklin said a couple of weeks ago, where we joke about where where Chris has these great geek moments, and he talks about how that's the greatest moment of his life, even over the birth of his children. <laughs> and a, a couple of weeks ago, he got friended on Facebook by Red Brown. Who oh, played wow. Captain America in those 70s oh movies? And Chris loves those movies, <laughs> even though they're terrible, but Chris oh, loves yeah. them. But when he got friended by Red Brown, he just wrote very solemnly, This is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I love that nerds can have that sort of moment of transcendence. And I, I appreciate that sentiment because, like, in, while an individual comic can disappoint, yeah. comics do not. Exactly. Because there's always something. And this story ends with a big uh, full-page shot of all the Justice Leaguers smiling as they take off on the building. And there are these little silhouettes. And it's, you know, they're off for another adventure. And it's a great way to end it. And, uh, you know, like, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I really hoped that this would have been the inaugural effort of DC returning to the Treasuries. That has not happened, uh, which is too bad. Marvel's doing the Treasuries again, which I'm very happy about. Maybe DC will get back to them at some point. But even if they don't, at least we have... Uh, this book because it's it's a lot of fun so sean thank you so much for coming on to talk about this yeah man thanks for having me this was great like i said it was a an off-the-cuff suggestion but and and completely motivated by the fact that i just love recording with you and talking with you so i was like oh that'd be fun and then in reading it like i said i was like oh i needed this like like this mm-hmm. is the comic gods like you know <laughs> like looking yeah i i'm like i said i don't i don't i'm a jewish so i'm not religious but i guess i do believe in the gods of comics and i was like oh this is the comic gods like pushing this back into my life right now when i when i needed it so no this was fun man this was this was really cool and i really do hope like your show has 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 inspired me to go back and get some treasuries. I do hope this inspires some people to read this again because I wonder if it didn't get written off as a you know widescreen Brian Hitch you know early two thousands kind of thing. And I think people would find it much more enjoyable than they remember. Yeah, maybe so. I like your idea of the gods of comics. I'm imagining like uh, that shot from Clash of the Titans with like Zeus <laughs> and they're all up in the clouds. And instead, instead though, it's like Jack Kirby. And yeah, like oh, yeah. Siegel, Siegel and Schuster and like Will Stanley. Eisner and they're all in these robes and they're Stan Lee and they're all just standing there looking down like, you know, well, hey, let's send them this, let's send them this book now. Boom. And, the, and then lightning comes down or whatever. The robotic owl is Herbie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go. Perfect. Perfect. So anyway, again, thank you so much for coming on, Sean. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so I am on the Pulp to Pixel podcast network uh, where we have shows. Uh, we have Secret Wars and Beyond, which covers every issue of every Marvel Secret Wars miniseries. We've covered the beautiful gem that is volume one that everybody loves because they read it when they were 10, even though in rereading you realize every sentence ends with an exclamation mark. Uh, I uh, crushed the soul of Greg Arujo and making him cover Secret Wars 2 with me, but the show was fun, even if the issues were, were awful. And now Dr. G and I are covering Secret Wars 3, which I actually think is the greatest crossover in Marvel history. It's by Hickman and Ribbick, and it's great. Uh, we also have What If Cast, where Dr. G and guests cover just random fun issues of What If, and we have Welcome to Astro City. We have a bunch of fun shows, and so I can be found there. And then I'm on Twitter at Sean42AZ, which is super not original in any way, but but, uh, yeah, but I'd love to hear some feedback on what people think. All right, awesome. Well, again, thanks, everybody, for listening. I want you to stay tuned. We're going to play some podcast promos, and when I come back, I'm going to do listener feedback. In late 1984, Marvel's direct sales manager sat in a crowded meeting of comic retailers. Let's be honest, Secret Wars was crap, right? But did it sell? The room exploded with applause. Well, get ready for Secret Wars Series 2. 
Beginning in 2018, Pulp to Pixel's Marvel Superhero Secret Wars and Beyond will do the unthinkable Secret Wars 2. We'll take a detailed look at the event, the tie-ins, the new characters, and we will attempt to answer one of the largest questions in the history of the Marvel Universe. What the heck was Jim Shooter thinking? No, no, seriously, what was Jim Shooter thinking? Well, you can find out at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where you can subscribe to all of our amazing shows, or just to Secret Wars and Beyond itself, as it is now in its own omnipotent feed. Secret Wars 2 and Beyond, a Pulp to Pixel Podcast production. You'll believe an omnipotent being can use the restroom. It's heartbreaking to have your favorite shows preempted, but look what you're getting instead. The Cast brings you Justice League Season 2. Woo! Back in business. The Justice League faces their greatest foes. This is a chance to rid ourselves of the League once and for all. Darkseid. Brainiac. Dr. Destiny. Lex Luthor. Amazo. Vandal Savage. Eclipso. The Joker. Harley Quinn. The Royal Flush Gang. The Secret Society of Supervillains. And themselves? Dale Ucast Season 2, available on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and at firewaterpodcast.com. Always have to be the hero, don't you? Right back at you. And we're back with listener feedback for episode 44 of Treasury Cast, More Secret Origins of Supervillains, with my guest Terry O'Malley. And these are the comments from the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. First up is Martin Gray. He says, what a great show, with today's co-host putting in the Terry in terrific. Well, except when he said Cheetah wasn't a top-tier villain. Cheetah, Mirror Master, Catwoman, Mixes, Pitalik, they're all top-tier challenges to their assigned hero. And to me, that puts them in the first rank of DC Infamy, up there on the lunchboxes with Luthor and Joker. Heck, Cheetah has always been Diana's number one foe, even if the current version is utter pants. This isn't one of the treasuries I have, but I'd been delighted with it. It's a great collection of stories and features. I actually did try making a diorama from the first Shazam issue. Isn't this the one remaining Shazam limited collections edition needing covered, Rob? Sticks hands up. He adds, when I was a kid, I wanted to live in Carmen Infantino's Central City. It was so blooming, slick, and futuristic. The Legion artist Terry's extremely discerning daughter likes is John Forte. Hey, we should have a show featuring discerning daughter and Shag's precocious princess. Call it Fire and Daughter Team Up. <laughs> well done, Martin. Uh, Ward Hill Terry chimes in. He says, as I was listening to this, I was yelling at my speakers, John Forte, you dope. Uh, don't be too hard on yourself, Terry. I, I didn't uh, suss out the name either, and I know who John Forte is, so uh, we both uh, screwed up on that one. Edo Boznar says, oh, man, love this episode so much, even more than usual, because you're again covering one of the treasuries I actually had back in the day. In fact, this one, together with the Batman treasury, the very one in the house set on your gallery page, are, I think, among the first treasury books I ever had. I'm pretty sure Bicentennial Battles was the first, and it was because of that house ad. It was in one of the comics I had, and the little eight-year-old me begged and pleaded with my mom until she agreed to write out that check for a whopping $3 so I could send away for those. I still remember how they arrived in one of those big brown cardboard mailers. I kept a mailer to store them and to carry them around, like to school, to show off to my friends. As for the stories inside, I recall liking the Batman book better. In this one, I liked, or at least best remember, the Flash and Superboy stories. Unlike Terry, the giant mosquito really made an impression on me, and I still finally recall that splash page to this day. That diorama on the back cover tempted me back then. In that early stage of my comics reading, I often cut up my comic books, but even I decided to give my scissors a rest rather than to try and take on that challenge. Yeah, that, that's, all the dioramas to me are, are pretty difficult just because of the paper stock and the, generally the kind of tools that you have at your disposal, even the sharpest X-Acto blade uh, gets dull very quickly, but that one looked particularly hard. 
Michael Bailey says, the Catwoman story that was in this treasure is one of my favorites. It's so crazy. I love it. stories from the Golden Age. I mean, she just didn't get amnesia. No, that's for less than villains. She fell out of an effing plane and got amnesia. That's how they do it in Gotham. And the bit with the villain being who the villain is was legit clever. There is a follow-up story where we see Selina working a regular job and getting annoyed at the press Batman gets because comics in the Golden Age. I love that they used the Wanted logo in this treasury. I stumbled across that series years ago, and unless I accidentally put it in the wrong box, that series is among the comics that survived the purge last year. I bought it and filed it away as a someday I will podcast about this because this is a great book for a miniseries show, so hopefully I didn't accidentally sell it, which I keep discovering has happened. This is what it sounds like when doves cry. Awesome to finally have a voice to Ward Hill Terry. He was a great co-host, and the thing with his daughter at the end made me smile. Thank you, Michael. Me too. Noah Tarnow says, great episode. That cover is just the most exciting thing ever. Is it me, or was the mid to late 70s a golden age, so to speak, for DC villains? Maybe it's because of that era of my earliest comics memories. I've always been a sucker for colorful arch nemeses. When I finally read the Secret Society of Supervillains a few years ago, I was in sort of heaven. I loved it, but wish it had been better. That diorama is indeed tempting, no matter how hard it would be to assemble properly. Shouldn't someone be making modern diorama kits for nostalgic adult nerds like us? Finally, perhaps my memory is failing me in this regard. It's definitely failing me in countless other ways. But I believe that the Catwoman costume featurette was included in the Greatest Batman Stories Volume 2 trade paperback released in 1982, full of nothing but Catwoman and Penguin stories to capitalize on Batman Returns, of course. Uh, Martin Gray then returns and he says, Your memory's good, Noah. There's a reworked version of it in that brilliant book, which also gives us two pages on Penguin's brawlies. I've added a scan of it to the Treasury Comics Twitter notice for this episode. Thank you very much, Martin. Siskoid from our network says, They should go back to Cathead Catwoman. That is all. Good hill of dying on Siskoid. Chris Franklin, also from our network, says, Fun show. I actually have this treasury. I think I picked up a pretty beat-up copy cheap at Heroes Con. That Catwoman costume page was reprinted in Greatest Batman Stories Volume 2 which was all Catwoman and Penguin stories, again, to tie into the Batman Returns release 1992. I doubt many of these feature pages got reprinted elsewhere, but this one did. H.G. Peter's art always looked like woodcuts to me. He was an older fellow when he created Wonder Woman, so he actually illustrated the turn of the century when that style of art was still very much in vogue. Terry was a great guest. Looking forward to hearing more from him. Yeah, me too. I hope uh, Terry makes future appearances across the network. And then finally, Gothos Mansion says, Thank you for the show, guys. I'm always glad to see a new Treasury cast. Since we have books on comics history, archives, internet, etc. nowadays, I hope you don't forget what a thrill collections like this were for readers back then who didn't have much access to characters' pasts. Although I started collecting Batman in fall 1976, I didn't learn the origins of most of the big five villains until the Legend of the Batman miniseries and the one-page origins in Batman and Villains Digest. This treasury predates when I began collecting, but of course I have it now. Weird that there are two cat-themed female villains in one treasury. I think the will-she-stay-reformed-revert-back-to-evil thing presented a great number of story possibilities for Catwoman. It added an extra dynamic of should Batman trust her? There is a follow-up to this story called The King of Cats, where Selina seems to have returned to crime, and Batman seems jealous of the king and his relationship to Selina. To me, the comics code came along to squash the good guy in love with the bad girl trope, or we have gotten more interesting stories. Selina had returned to straight-up bad guy by the time she disappeared into the 50s. Compared to some tales from the typewriter William Moulton Marston, the cheetah story seems downright subdued. Most of his stories were much weirder than this. Considering what we know of his real life, I'm sure the darling kiss panel after Wonder Woman escapes the water trap was intentionally sapphic. We all know the huge, huge amount of bondage in Wonder Woman stories at the time, but I wonder if he slipped in some of the other fetish stuff because he had all these fetishes or he just wanted to titillate readers into buying the book. Golden Age Wonder Woman stories are fun because they're just so bat crap crazy. I truly do love them. 
DC missed out on not having a flash treasury full of Infantino art. Very true, Gothos. Well, I guess considering that reduced page counts and the fact that we got an Infantino flash here in the first supervillain's treasury and in the best of DC treasury, we almost got a treasury worth of Infantino flash content. All right, we didn't. I'm just trying to look on the bright side. Not a complaint uh, because I really enjoyed the show, but is there a reason why you covered this sequel treasury before the original Secret Origins supervillains? Uh, nothing mysterious there, Gothos. I pretty much let the guests pick what book they want to talk about. And more Secret Origins was the one that Terry selected, not the original. So they're not uh, directly connected other than the word more. There's really – they're not uh, continued stories or anything. So I figured why not jump ahead to the more because that's the one Terry wanted to talk about. But if anyone wants to talk the original Secret Origins Supervillains Treasury, go to the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, and uh, let me know because I'd be happy to cover it. Uh, and now I need to move on to Twitter. I forgot last month to thank everybody who retweets the show. My apologies. I didn't mean to leave it out. I just sort of blanked. Uh, so I won't get back to it this month because that obviously uh, anyone who retweets the show when it comes out helps gets the show noticed. And I really do appreciate that. So big thanks to the Irredeemable Shag, Old Spine Podcast, Dallin Baumgarten, Liz Ann Oswald, Firestorm Fan, The Surveyor's World, Chris, Slangword Scott, Jim Imbruglia, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, DC Now, a DC fan podcast, Booker T, KSCGSF podcast, Comics in the Golden Age, Chris Lydon, Tim Price, Between the Pages, Russell Rosenkild, Doc Strange, Siskoid, Fan Film Fridays podcast, Long Box of Darkness, Ange, Martin Gray, Captain Marvelite, Into the Weird, and coffee and comics. So thanks, everybody, for all those retweets. I really do appreciate it. And, of course, we are always talking treasuries over on Twitter, which is at Treasury Comics. You can subscribe to the show uh, over on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. And, of course, all the back episodes are on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. And, finally, you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network over on Patreon slash FW Podcast. And over there, you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So if you want to personally support Treasury Cast, uh, you go over there, just leave a donation, and you will be uh, mentioned here at the end of the show. So that's going to do it for this episode of Treasure Cast. Big thanks to Sean Ross for coming by and talking about JLA Heaven's Ladder. That's a super fun book. It's one of the great sort of big, you know, or all original Treasuries, and I was... As I said with Sean, I was so sure this was going to lead to more and more original DC treasury. It didn't quite work out, but at least we got uh, that one because it is a whole lot of fun. And I always enjoy talking to Sean anyway. So that's going to do it for this episode. So until next month's episode, go big or go home. The Justice League of America, the combined might and power of the Man of Steel and the Cosmic Crusader, the Winged Avenger and the King of the Sea, the Tiny Titan. And the Scarlet Street, all working together for good against evil as the Justice League of America. Now, 